Greetings, and welcome to the Tapestry Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Turner. Tapestry is the adoption and foster care ministry of Irving Bible Church in Irving, Texas. Once again, we are recording live from Town Square in Irving Bible Church during the Tapestry Conference. And joining me today are Kayla North. Hello. And Dr. Mandy Howard. Hello. How are you guys? Good. Doing well. Uh, Mandy, this morning you talked about uh, trauma being developmental, and we wanted to share more of that with our podcast listeners. So could you uh, maybe expound upon that a little bit? How is trauma developmental? Sure. So, um, you know, the the theme of the conference this year is beyond the basics and and really going beyond uh, those basic things like you know, attachment and neurochemistry and, uh, you know, things like food issues and and taking that a little bit deeper. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about during my presentation is how this changes developmentally across time. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you think about something like language or intelligence, there's a, a basic foundational standpoint that you have at the beginning of life, but all of your life experiences will cause that to change. So you start as an infant and you, you, you coo and you babble, and then over time you start getting words and then you start using uh, basic units of speech and then all the way up to having sentences and these complex things. Um, trauma is the same way. It changes and kind of the, the way that you deal with that trauma changes as you age. So the if a child has grief and loss at the age of six, it's going to look different at six than it is at 16, than it is when they're getting ready uh, for their wedding at 26 versus when they have their own children mm-hmm. um, you know, at 36. And understanding that as the, the child grows, um, the way that they process that trauma is going to be different. And we as caregivers need to continue to bring them alongside and help them regulate that trauma as they age. Yeah, that's hard for me to remember, you know, as my kids have been home Mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, And even my biological kids, because, you know, one of my biological kids, she was really little when we had some foster placements leave that she was really close to. Mm -hmm. And we've started to notice just some some anxiety in her and some, some things that she really struggles with that we think may be linked to those early losses that she couldn't process because she was so little when we were fostering. Just thinking about it now, though, it's like, okay, how do we help her deal with that over time Mm -hmm. as that does change? Because she does have anxiety about people leaving, and she has anxiety about us going places, you know, us being here at the conference. We're gone all day long, and she has made sure she's gotten up before we left in the morning because she has this deep anxiety about us not being there. Mm-hmm. Even though she's fine during the day, and she's great, and she's she's good about, you know, she gives us a hug and a kiss and says, I'll miss you, and, and she's processed it, but some days are harder than others, and it's it's hard as it as we go along and and try and help her process through that at different stages and ages. So One of the things you, you said was that because the trauma is developmental, our interventions as parents needs to be developmental as well. Could you maybe give us some examples of how that might look? Sure. So I've been working with families for a long time, and uh, many of the families that have been in my care, I've known them from the time their children are three, four, five years old, and those kids are now in their late teenage years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the strategy is, so for example, say you have a child that's an internalizer. Right. And whenever their, their trauma rears its ugly head, whenever that emotion comes up, they shut down. Mm-hmm. What that looks like when they're five might be 
locking themselves in, in their bedroom or it might be refusing to speak. Um, I've worked with several kids that have selective mutism where when any time they have anxiety, they just stop talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you deal with that at five years old? But in the same respect, when that trauma comes up for that child again at 15, the strategies that you used at five may not be exactly the same. Especially if they're driving, right? Exactly. And they can if actually driving, physically leave the house. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so it's this idea that the underlining principles remain the same. Uh, you need to empower, you need to connect, you need to correct, you need to be proactive in these moments, but recognizing that you know, two hands, two eyes, uh, and sitting down with them one-on-one when they're five, that may have worked really, really well then. How do you translate that to working with your 15, 16-year-old? Um, if you have older kids in the house that have this history, how do you translate that to your married children mm. who now have this trauma coming back up in an area of their life? And so when you think about the fact that this uh, trauma is developmental, it means that as we go through intervention, that intervention needs to be able to develop and change uh, and encompass the, the types of things that we need to do to bring our children closer and help them to feel connected. So how do we, as we're preparing to parent at these different ages and stages Mm -hmm. as it's developing, how do we anticipate what's coming up or how do we prepare our kids for that? I mean, do we talk to them about it? Do we, as parents, just do things that help those moments be easier if we know about them in advance? Yeah. Okay. So it, it goes along this idea of you're trying to be proactive. So the number one expert on your child will always be you. Mm -hmm. You know their history, you know the things that uh, bring them comfort and bring them connection, you know the things that are distancing is going to bring up that trauma. So thinking about the big moments in their life where this piece of trauma might rear its ugly head. Um, And I gave the example earlier in my talk, uh, I had a really good friend that was raised in foster care uh, and she has issues with separation. She had lost her father uh, and so that trauma reared its head when that happened, but it also happened when she went into foster care. Uh, it happened when she went into her new adoptive home mm. and mm. she called her fa- her adoptive father daddy for the first time. It wasn't that that wasn't a beautiful moment, but that trauma was still there. It also happened when she learned how to do relationships with her husband for the first time and yeah. when she had her children. So recognizing that these big moments in life, um, when you think about stress from a purely physical level, mm-hmm. um, from a physiological standpoint, good stress and bad stress mm have the exact same neurochemistry. What changes it from good to bad is how your brain interprets it, right? And so if you can take these events that you know are gonna be stressful for your your child, so say they have some attachment types of issues, and that's been something that's been going on through their entire childhood, and now they're going to undergrad for the first time, Mm -hmm. right? They're 18, they're gonna be a freshman in college, this is an exciting time. Recognize that if they have separation issues, um, if they have family types of issues, it's going to be challenging. So how can you prepare them for that uh, prior to going, but also having a strategy in place for you know, when these things come up, when these emotion comes up, what is our action plan? Mm. Yeah. Um, so, and it might mean that at first they're going to need a lot of support because our goal is for them to be able to regulate on their own. Right. 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 When, you, when you talk about a secure base for an infant, the secure base is literally their caregiver's arms. Mm. Yeah. As you get older, they can venture out farther and farther and farther from that secure base. Um, 
But what makes it secure isn't that uh, they're venturing out. It's that they know someone has their back when they need them. So if you're working with, you know, your child's 18 and they're going off to college for the first time, you don't have to go to college with them. In fact, you probably shouldn't. They wouldn't appreciate that very (laughs) much. Although my my kids, some of my kids do say they're going to go to college close by so that they can live at home because they never want to (laughs) leave. I'm like, well, that might happen to you. Okay. Maybe it's not good I for might you. I so, kick you out so, after a couple years. Yeah, I, I really love you and all, but at some point you do have to leave my yes, house. Yes, yes. Autonomy is important out of the nest. Yes. Um, but in, the, in that same respect, if you know that this is going to be challenging for them, uh, being able to provide them with a lot of support there at the beginning, especially um, you know, filling up those emotional needs right before they leave, letting them know that yeah. you're there, that you're present. These are the things that we're going to do to keep connected with you, um, okay. whether it's we're going to Skype once a week and we're, we're going to be available and I'm going to send you a daily text message. And then when they get there, um, it's the idea that they know that you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Even we, when you're not physically present. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the same thing is true. Um, one of the, the things that we know about children that have secure attachment and adults that have secure attachment you know, people get very concerned that if, if you keep saying yes, won't they get needy and won't they get dependent, et cetera, et cetera. But what we know is they don't because they know if they do need someone, they're going to be there to support their mm-hmm. needs. Yeah. And so setting up proactively, what are you going to do? What are we going to do if things go wrong? Yeah. Um, maybe even establishing like, okay, so we're going to come and visit you a month into the semester. Mm. Right, already just, having a place in place. Yes, a so that, plan in place. Yes, already having that plan in place, already having this deadline so that they have something to look forward to for that reconnection. Mm-hmm. And what you find is at first, they're going to rely on those strategies a lot. You're going to get lots of text messages. You're going to get lots of Skype calls. But over time, because they know you're going to be there if you need them, it alleviates that trauma. It alleviates mm-hmm. that fear. And they feel like they have a good plan in place. They don't need you as much mm-hmm. because they know when they do, you're going to be there. Well, it's just like the concept of saying yes when they're little, when you're just, just saying yes to them more often, it seems counterintuitive, but really it builds that trust that, that helps them know you're there and you are going to say yes. And same sounds like the same principle there. Yeah. Mandy, in your talk, one of the things you said that really resonated with me was behavior is just smoke, mm-hmm. that it's masking a need. Uh, what are some ways that our parents can recognize the needs that are behind our kids' behaviors? Sure. So, you know, many times when I I work with parents and I work with a lot of parents, um, I say, you know, what what are some things or some challenges in your home? And they're like, well, they're hitting. Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, they're they're fighting with their siblings. They're argumentative. They're throwing tantrums. Um, And those, you know, we're going to deal with behavior. Behavior, you know, that type of behavior is not acceptable. But helping families to frame it in those behaviors mean something. So every behavior has a function. Mm-hmm. And so what is the function of that behavior in the moment? That's just the smoke. How do we get to the fire underneath? Um, so some of the things that I, I recommend for families to do, it takes a lot of self-regulation on the part of the caregiver. Mm. Um, but in those moments, taking a deep breath and saying, what does this child need? What are they really asking me mm-hmm. right now? Um, and sometimes in the moment, especially when the wheels have kind of come off, it's hard to do that. So just like we try to be proactive with our kids, we try to be proactive with our parents. So if you know, for example, that your child is always having a hard time after relatives come into town, 
right? And they, they have a hard time right before relatives come into town. They're really excitable. It's hard for them to regulate. When the relatives are in town, they just completely fall apart. And then when the relatives leave, they're very upset and despondent. Look for those patterns. Mm. What is yeah. the need below that behavior? What does that, what does that mean? And in this case, it could be the function of that behavior is when those relatives come into town, as we all know, they shatter our routines, mm-hmm. right? For, I mean, for good. They're, yeah. You know, it's supposed to be fun, but you're, you're probably going out more and doing things that you don't normally do. Um, it's going to be louder. There's going to be extra people in your house. It's going to mess with the basic set level of felt safety in mm-hmm. the home. Yeah. So the need behind the acting out behavior is I need you to bring me closer to help me feel safe. Right, to feel like I have some predictability mm-hmm. in this environment that I know is going to be unpredictable. And again, it's not that those behaviors are, are okay, but recognizing that the need below that acting out behavior, both before and during, it isn't about the relatives. Mm-hmm. It's about this idea that I have this set of routines and I feel like I'm in control of it, and now those routines are gone and I don't feel safe. So how can we meet that safety need and help them to be successful in this new experience? You know, Ryan and I uh, were speaking in Georgia a couple of weeks ago uh, to a group of parents who run group foster homes. Mm-hmm. And we were having lunch, and one of the moms was kind of sharing uh, her and her husband's story with us. And we ended up talking about this little girl, eight-year-old girl that they have. She was acting out a lot. Mm-hmm. And they, they, were, they, were, they were trying to figure out the need. They'd been TBRI trained enough that they were searching for that already, but they couldn't quite figure out what it was. And she had a real hard time accepting no. And that when she was told no, she would, she would lash out violently. Mm-hmm. And uh, she told us one, this one story about they had to tell her no for something, and it was at the dinner table. And she ended up going under the dinner table and started biting the legs of the other family members. And when they all kind of scattered, she responded by jumping up and dumping the table. Ryan kind of was asking some questions, and we, we come to find out that she came from a very chaotic home. And that what we eventually got to was that she was looking for a measure of control in her new environment where she felt like she had none. It was very counterintuitive. Like, she's in a much safer, more stable environment, and yet she felt totally out of control. And this was her way. This was her need. She had a need for control, and that was her way of expressing it. And that was just so wild for me to, to watch that happen and to listen to them work that out. Because like I said, it was very counterintuitive to how I would have thought that that you know, yeah. need was being met. Yeah. Well, and, and if you think about it from her perspective, biting, kicking, tossing the table, mm-hmm. those are strategies that worked for her in the past. Right. When the world was out of control, these are some things I could do to get in control. So when you're thinking about it, okay, so now we understand the need below the behavior how can we teach her to meet that need in an appropriate way? And, you know, really being able to be proactive with her and say, all right, I get what you're saying. I understand. I hear, right? It's it's a form of giving her voice. Um, Now, how can we together, bringing her closer, Mm -hmm. learn to meet this need in a healthy way? And and having her be a part of that process. Because when you can bring them on board, they're more invested in it. And they feel more successful. And they feel empowered. Exactly. Exactly. Because a lot of kids, after the moment of a meltdown, you know, they'll feel embarrassed so that they have. Shame. Yeah, there's all this shame that's underlying. And so if you, you proactively say, I want to give you tools so that those things don't happen. Mm-hmm. 
it, it helps their whole self-esteem like, oh, there's a way to stop that because they feel so out of control in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love that, just looking for that need behind the behavior and what's, what's really going on. Love that. I'd like to thank Kayla and Manny for being on the podcast today. Bye, Chris. Thank you for having us. If you have a question for us that will fit into 140 characters, you may tweet it to us at tapestryibc. If you require a bit more room, you can email us at tapestry at irvingbible.org. You may also find us on Facebook at Tapestry IBC. You could subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Just search for Tapestry Adoption Podcast. If you have enjoyed and gotten value from this podcast, we would appreciate a review on the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store. You can find more resources on our website, tapestryministry.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>